So this was a rough week. Um, this was a rough week. Uh, no snow, and Laura made me trim my beard. <laughs> it was a, uh, it was tough. It was tough. <laughs> Traitors, every one of you. Our question over the past few weeks has been, why did God become man? Why did God become man? Uh, Perhaps the deepest and most significant question that you will ponder in your life. In fact, uh, my, my suspicion is that once we enter into the kingdom of God and we see God in all of his glory, we'll still be awestruck with the mystery of why the almighty, infinite, omnipotent, all powerful God would become man to save us, uh, to rescue us, to build a kingdom, to be our king. Um, It's an awesome, it's an awesome thought. As we've pondered this, we have instead of jumping into the New Testament and, and, and answering it quickly by looking at the words of Jesus, we've asked the question, what did the prophets foretell? Because the prophets didn't just give us information so that we could recognize the Messiah when he came, but rather to instill in the people hope, hope. That God offers promises because he wants us to trust him, because he knows that the days are dark, and because he knows that people need hope. But what is the hope that we find in Jesus? What is the hope that we find in Jesus? We've seen that the hope that we find in Jesus is, maybe to sum it all up, an oncoming king. Somebody who is coming. We have seen that he is coming in Psalm 2. We saw that he's coming to conquer, that he is going to rule the nations with a rod of iron, that he will dash his enemies to pieces like a potter's vessel, that he will strike the ground with the rod of his mouth, that he will conquer and put his enemies under his feet. We see that once he has done this, we saw this in in Isaiah chapter 9 and Isaiah chapter 11, we see again in Jeremiah 23 and Zechariah 14, this prophecy that once he has established his rule and his reign, once he has has placed his enemies under his feet, he will reign over them, that the heavens and the earth will be restored and that he he will stand as king and no one will oppose his will. It leads us, I think, to today's message. Um... A very logical outcome, I think, if Christ is coming to conquer, um, and if he is coming to reign, then it makes sense that he would also command. Uh, So our contemplation today, or our answer in part to the why did God become man, is this, that Christ might command. That Christ might command. And this to me seems to be an important question today. I kind of feel like a, a cranky old man, even as I'm as I was writing this message, because I feel like I've heard the same thing when I was a kid, <laughs> but the days are darker, I think. I heard um, a story from Jessie, our, our secretary, who's, who's fantastic. If you haven't had a chance to talk with her, you're missing out. Uh, she was telling me a story about a local church, uh, one in our area, uh, some friends of hers who go that, to that church. Um, that the church is, uh, I, I hate the words progressive or liberal, because they kind of don't mean what we 
make them mean these days, but the church was becoming liberal or progressive and a particular theological issue. And this couple had a very big problem with this, and so they went to the minister, and they wanted to talk with him about this. And, and, and what's, so, so what's so interesting to me is his answer to them, because his answer to them was this. His answer to them, as they're discussing this issue, because it's a very clear biblical issue that has a very clear right or wrong or yes or no answer in terms of the Bible, his answer to them was this. His answer was, we are not a Bible-believing church. We are a Jesus-believing church. A Jesus-believing church. And I think, that, I think that this is what we see, just in general. I see all over the place this, this push again and again to set Jesus up over and against Scripture, as though we could follow Jesus without somehow... Um, following all of Scripture, or that some Scripture uh, reveals Jesus more than other Scripture, and so those Scriptures are better than the other Scriptures, and we sort of cut and, cut and paste the Scriptures together as we feel like it, it, it attaches itself to Jesus. And we see this. I, I saw this in Bible college. I saw this in seminary. Uh, we see this throughout this issue and so I, I, I want to explore with that problem in the back of our minds, and I know you've run into it. Man, if you fired up Facebook this week, I know you've run into it. This question of, does Christ command us? And maybe even better yet, how does Christ command us? I want you to turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 18. In the book of Deuteronomy, uh, we have the oldest, one of the oldest prophecies concerning the coming of the Messiah. We're waiting, we're hoping, we're looking forward to a day when something changes, when something happens, when sin is taken care of, when things are not breaking down, when, when something new happens. Throughout the prophets, we receive glimpses of this. Deuteronomy 18 stands out because it is Moses giving us a glimpse. In Deuteronomy 18, Looking at verse 15 through 19, it says this. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. And it is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire any, any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up from them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Let me give you some backdrop, just in, just in case you're not super familiar with Deuteronomy, and that's all right. Read it and become familiar with it. Uh, but let me give you background in, in the meantime. This is Moses delivering to the children of the children of Israel. So if you remember, they've wandered through the wilderness for 40 years, and the first generation has died off, and this new generation is about to enter into the promised land. But before they enter into the promised land, Moses gives a series of speeches, a series of sermons, in which he gives to the people again 
the commandments of God. He is reiterating to this new generation, you need to remember these commandments. These are the commandments that the Lord God gave us at Sinai or Mount Horeb. It goes by both names. God has given this to us. He retells the stories of Israel's unfaithfulness and he warns them to follow God. And so Deuteronomy is a very important book because it reveals to this generation all of these great truths so he gives this to them, and we have in this scene, and I, I want to point out this, uh, this uh, verse here in verse um, 16. Uh, Just as you desired of the Lord on Mount Horeb, on the day of the assembly, you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire any more lest I die. You might remember how Israel makes it to Mount Sinai and Mount Horeb, and they see the fearsome fire. The whole mountain is covered in this black cloud, and it is flashing lightning. The thunder is so, is so powerful, it's shaking the very foot of the mountain. And the people are standing there, and they're looking up, and they're saying, this is God, this is scary. Moses, you deal with this. <laughs> and, and the Lord says here that that was a good idea. The Lord says so I came to you, right, and he delivered the words, instead of delivering them to all of Israel, <coughs> he gave them to Moses, and Moses then delivered them to Israel. And so what is, what is Moses saying here? He's saying that just as there was an intermediary between God and between the people, and that was me, there is going to be a new prophet that will arise, who will be a new intermediary between God and and the people, and God is going to, going to do this. And so let's think about this. This very first verse, the Lord said, uh, the, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. And we have to be careful with this word prophet. We have to be careful with this word prophecy, because this is misused in churches today all of the time. We have people who come and visit, and they're a prophet, or they're a prophetess, and these kinds of things. Not at this church, obviously, Kristen. Don't give me that dirty look. But at other churches, these things happen. Um, and we have to be careful with that word. We have to be very careful with that word. Uh, because what we often see people mean when they, when they, you know, you have traveling prophets or whatever, what they seem to mean is, I am going to give you a word about the future. I'm going to predict your future for you. Right? That's what we sort of think of when we think of prophecy or prophets. But what does the text say here? It says that you will raise up, God will raise up a prophet like who? Like Moses. Now, how many predictions of the future did Moses make? Well, we have one. I can't think of another one. Maybe you can. But he didn't do a whole lot of that, now did he? What did Moses spend most of his time doing? What? Leading? Speaking God's word, right? He spent most of his time being the intermediary, saying, God has commanded you, do this, so do this. You don't need any kind of future predictive powers for that. You need a word from the Lord, and then you communicate the word from the Lord to the people. That's what prophecy means in this context. We might think of elsewhere in the law, in Genesis chapter 20, verse 7, God is speaking to Abimelech, who has taken Abraham's wife, and he says, you better give her back, because that man is a prophet. Now, how much future predictions did Abraham make? Not any that I could find. 
God made some to, to Abraham, but Abraham didn't make any. In fact, what did Abraham do? Abraham was the intermediary between God and between his people. He was delivering to them the covenant, the covenant of circumcision, the covenant of promises, the covenant of faithfulness. And so Abraham, in this context, as a prophet, is not somebody who is telling the future. He is somebody who is delivering the commands of God and calling people to obedience. I've seen some of these so-called prophets And they have a word from the Lord to you about what you should do next Tuesday or what God is going to do in your life or some sort of usually pat on the back future that you're going to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. But that is not what prophecy means in the law. What prophecy means in the law is God has commanded and there is somebody who is standing in front of you telling you, you better obey. You better obey. So God is going to raise up somebody like Moses, a prophet, who is going to get the commands from God and deliver the commands to the people, a prophet will rise. And this should remind us of Jesus in John chapter 14, verse 24, who says, Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's, but the Father who sent me. Jesus is abundantly clear that these are not his messages, but they're commandments from God to him to deliver to the people. Jesus is the new Moses. And that's important. You notice here in this verse, uh, verse 15, the Lord will ra- God, your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. It is to him you shall listen. It is to him that you shall listen. Now, that's important. And we might remember Hebrews chapter 7, verses 18 and 19. You might want to write that down and look it up later. It says this, For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness And uselessness for the law, and here referring to the laws and commandments given to Moses, the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. This is important because what Moses is saying is what the New Testament is saying as well, that they're in connection, they're, they're, they're together in this. Moses says that there is somebody who is going to arise and he is going to supplant me because the newer always supplants the older, right? How many of you have, Ken was talking about smartphones, right? How many of you kept your smartphones from two or three years ago? No, you, stop it right now. So Eric has a whole collection, we know. But most of us, when we receive something new, we toss the other thing out because the other thing, the older thing, it is obsolete. It's not necessary anymore. So what Hebrews is saying is that, that the former commandment that was given to the people is going to be supplanted. And it's supplanted because there's an error, there's a mistake, or it's not as good as the new. And so what Moses is saying is what Hebrews is attributing to Jesus. And this draws us into two very important conclusions. The first is, tight. the first is this. Without obedience to the new commandment, uh, with obedience to the new commandment, we draw near to God. And that makes sense to us, doesn't it? The new law that is introduced replaces the old law. And so what is so wonderful about Jesus is that the Old Testament law was not able to draw the people into relationship with God. They were kept at a distance in that story that we had here in verse Uh, verse 16, where the mountain was shaking and everyone was so afraid that they stood back and they wouldn't draw near to God. In fact, they said, push Moses, like, Moses, you go up the mountain, man. I don't want to, I don't want to go near to that. But what we have in Hebrews, by the end of Hebrews, the conclusion is this, that we're not drawing near to that thunderous 
terrifying mountain. No, now we are drawing near to Christ. That Christ is now, God himself has taken on flesh to draw us into his light. And so we have confidence to stand before God. Not arrogance, not pride, but through humility and grace that we have confidence to stand in the presence of God. Therefore, the newer that has come in Christ has replaced the older imperfect law found in Moses. And Moses says this day will come. Now this leads us to another glorious, I mean, and that's, that's like good news. You should be cheering and jumping in your seats. Like that's good news. We have replaced an old thing that was feeble and unable to make us perfect with a new thing that God has given us so that we might be perfected in his sight. That's good news. But it leads us to a terrifying second conclusion. And this is where it gets, this is where people get mad and start throwing hymnals. If obedience to this new commandment allows me to draw near to God, disobedience to this commandment means I have no relationship with God whatsoever. This is kind of a fearsome, uh, very controversial thing to say. I know that we're in a position in our day and age where everyone is okay all the time, um, but the scriptures don't speak like this. They don't speak like this. And if we think about it, if we just, if we, if we set our emotions aside, and this is something like today we just can't seem to do, but if we set our emotions aside for a moment and we use logic and reason and we thought about this, think about this. How do you draw near to a king? How do you get into the court of a king? Or, or, or set kings aside for a second because we don't have kings very often uh, in the world anymore. So you, you have a president. How do you get into the cabinet of the president? How would you be somebody who is invited into his inner circle? Well, you'd be somebody who, who has already advocated for his policies, for his, his procedures, for his perspective on the way the country ought to be run and the way the laws ought to be enforced, all these different things. You align with that president's will, and so he makes you the secretary of energy or the secretary of the interior or whatever, right? They put you in that position. You see how much I pay attention to presidential appointments. The same is true then with the king, only much more fearsome, especially when we're speaking about the almighty God. Speaking of the king of the universe, the one who set molecules in motion, the one who who set everything in its place, who has ordered the cosmos itself. And we would have the position to say, well, I'm going to come to you, God, on my own terms. God says, no, 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 that is not how this thing works. I lay down the ground rules, and you, if you wish to have fellowship with me, must account for it that way. And, you know, Jesus never pretended like this wasn't controversial. Because whether you're an atheist, a Christian, or a crystal-loving hippie, it's always true. No one likes being told what to do. Right? Does anybody like being told what to do? No one likes it. No one likes being commanded. No one likes it. Because at the core of humanity is rebelliousness. At the core of sin, then, is also rebelliousness. And the core of the gospel is taking care of rebelliousness. You remember the prophecy from Isaiah 53, where it says, We have all, like sheep, gone astray. Every one of us has sought his own way. At this is the very core of why we are no longer connected to God, why we have such division between us and people and us and creation and us and God, that there is division and strife and rebelliousness because each one of us is trying to go in our own direction and no one is heeding the voice of the shepherd that says, follow me, I have the good way. No, no, I want to go my own way. And so the scriptures say that that is sin and that sin is taken care of by the beautiful next verse in Isaiah 53. Therefore God has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. 
that you and I might have peace with God. That my going astrayness will be taken care of and I will be brought into the flock and I might be led by the hand of the one who knows the way. But if I reject the hand of the one who knows the way, what hope do I have to have fellowship with him? I know we want everyone to go to heaven and we talk like this all the time, but we're also being deceitful. We're lying to people. And we ought not to do that because we are stealing from them the opportunity to come to the knowledge of truth, which is salvation. And there is salvation, as Peter proclaimed in Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven whereby we can receive salvation. It's only through Jesus. You remember when Jesus talks about this, he says that, that the, the thief, the thief jumps over the fence But the one who owns goes through the door, right? You only go through the door. And Jesus says, I'm the door. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. So if the prophecies, and and everyone, like I said at the beginning, well, we're not a Bible-believing church, but we're a Jesus-believing church. Okay, well, what does Jesus say? Jesus says, you have to go through me. That if the prophecy given in, in Deuteronomy 18 is true, there's a prophet who is going to rise, who's going to be the intermediary from God to the people. And this one is going to say the commands and the words of God to the people so that the people would know what is right and what is wrong, that they might obey and receive salvation, life abundantly, now and forevermore. That's good news for those who follow And it is the core of our message. That's why we share Jesus plastered all over the place because we want you guys to do that. That's what you're called to do. Obey and to share. Verse 19 drives this home. Um, Deuteronomy 18, 19, it drives it home. It says, And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Which means that those who hear the word of the prophet and they don't obey it, it's not the prophet who is going to proclaim judgment upon the person. You might remember Jesus said that, I haven't come to judge the world, I've come to save the world. No, there's somebody else who will judge the world. Who's going to judge the world? God will judge the world because he has required you to hear the voice of the prophet and obey it. And obey it. Jesus Authority then is in his words, and his words are given, are given by God. And that brings us to this desperate battle that I brought up this morning. Uh, this battle between how do we know how to follow Jesus? I'm not, uh, we're not a Bible-believing church, we're a Jesus-believing church. Okay, well, how do I know how to follow Jesus? And we have a problem because, because at, at bottom line, we have to assume that if, that if we're going to say we believe in God, then there is an absolute right and there is an absolute wrong. And there just has to be. If you don't believe in God, then it doesn't matter. You can do whatever you want. There's no accountability, whatever. But if you believe in God, there is an absolute right and there's an absolute wrong. And all of the controversies of the day, abortion, homosexuality, all this stuff. There is right and there is wrong. God has the grounding of right and wrong. The problem that we have these days is what? We've got Christians left and right, both quoting Bible verses. What do we do with that? It's very confusing out there. I I feel bad for somebody who's trying to come to Jesus for the first time because, man, it's nuts out there. Really is. And what do we do with that? So we can answer the question like, 
Roman Catholic friends, Episcopal friends, certain Presbyterians, definitely Methodist friends, will stand up and they'll say, well, listen, yeah, we can't tell because we have perspectives that say yes and perspectives that say no, and they each have their favorite verses. So what do we do? We have a group of people who decide for us. We allow the church, and by church we mean the people who are in charge of the church, bishops or cardinals or popes or whatever, um, diocese, synods, They get together and they make decisions for everyone else because, well, we can't trust just the Bible, so we need the authority of the church to interpret the Bible for us. The problem with that, and the the perfect example, and I don't mean to be overly picking on them, well, I I kind of do, but, um, is the Episcopal Church, for example, uh, who, during the, the emergence of the feminist movement in the 60s and 70s, immediately said, you know what? We were wrong this whole time. We should have women who are bishops and, 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 and priests, and they call them priests. I guess they must call them mothers since they call them fathers. I don't know how that works. I have to ask my friend. I don't know. Anyway, what was I saying? Right. So suddenly we realize our interpretation of the Bible was wrong. It just happens to coincide so neatly with what society is now believing. And then as we have the explosion of accepting homosexuality as being okay, uh, right, good, just in the face of God, they suddenly come to a a new realization, oh, man, we've been wrong 2,000 years. Whoops, sorry, guys. Uh, Now we we think it's okay, it's it's, it's good. It just happens to coincide so neatly with what society has already believed. And we could track this with the Roman Catholic Church, which is, of course, much more slow to move, but the same thing. And so what we see then is, once we give authority into the position and hands of men, suddenly it, 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 it what influences, instead of having two people going right and left, you just have one person who's just following the, the designs of society. And so we're left with the exact same problem. The exact same problem. And that leaves us, I think, with the question the question of how do we deal with what happens when the prophet is no longer with us. Moses says that the prophet's going to come and he's going to deliver to you the messages, the commandments of God, and you're going to need to obey and follow those words. What happens when the prophet is gone? And the answer that we have as a church declared and the reformers declared and we, I think, are consistent with what the early fathers declared and what, of course, the scriptures themselves declare, and that is that wonderful Latin phrase, since I've already bored you with Latin for two weeks, why not make it three? Sola Scriptura. By scripture alone. It doesn't mean that we're not going to have disagreements. It doesn't mean that we will do it perfectly. It does mean that we will absolutely, and this is how I defined it, when you, when you have churches that are preaching progressivism, we never, ever, ever progress beyond the Bible. Never. It is the ground floor of all things. It is the ground floor of doctrine. It is the ground floor of the commandments given to us. It is the only way that we could ever say Jesus is commanding you. Because what happens, what's what's the other way of doing it? Jesus is going to command me by what? How does he command you? Does he command you by your inclinations? Does he command you by your opinions? Does he command you by, by, by what everybody else or the majority of the people are saying around you? Does he command you by, please, Dear goodness, I hope not by what TV is showing you. Well, how, does it, how does God command you? He can only command you through the scriptures. 
This is why we read in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired by God. This word means literally to be breathed out by God. This is where we get this word inspiration. It has been breathed out by God. Every chapter, every verse, every line, every piece of the canon, every book, everything in it has been breathed out by God. Certainly it was written by the hands of men and God utilized their languages, utilized their hand, utilized their understanding of the world. He utilized those things, but everything that was written was written because God ordered it to be written, which is why Jesus says in Matthew 4, verse 4, man might, cannot live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And what did Jesus mean by that? What did Jesus mean by that? Did he mean find what you like in the Bible and set the other stuff aside? Did he mean that you should do what I see most often now? Well, the Bible doesn't really mean what you thought it meant for 2,000 years. It means something completely new and different. Huh. Right? So handy. So handy. But what, is, what does Jesus mean by that? Paul is latching on to what Jesus says. You can see this beautiful, beautiful symmetry that, that Paul, who didn't walk with Jesus, certainly wasn't with Jesus when he was tempted, but has been told, perhaps by Jesus himself in his encounters with him, but, but has been told this. And so Jesus says, man can't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, every word that is breathed out, inspired by the mouth of God. And Paul latches onto that and he says, every word of scripture is this, God breathed. You don't get to set it aside just because you don't like it. You don't get to set it aside because it doesn't fit with the way that people are speaking anymore. It doesn't fit with context. It doesn't fit with, with, with culture. All of that is false doctrine. Hebrews 12, we read this, for the word of God is living and active, that it is alive. And in this, it doesn't mean it's alive and that it's shaping and moving and shifting itself, but rather it is shaping, moving, shifting, cutting, building, binding, and breaking us down so that we might be equipped for every good work. For without scripture doing that to us, not us doing it to it, we can never align ourselves with the voice of the shepherd. Jesus prayed in John 17, 7, your word is truth. What did he mean by that? What could he have possibly meant by that if not scripture? Isaiah 40, verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Jesus in, on the sermon, and this is so important, uh, Jesus is uh, in Matthew chapter 5 doing the Sermon on the Mount and we see such correlation between him and Moses. Moses goes up to, onto the mountain and he receives the word of the Lord and then he comes down and he delivers it to the people. But what happens in Matthew chapter 5? Jesus goes up onto the mountain and he brings the people with him. And he goes up on the mountain and he says, I tell you this, I tell you this, I tell you this. He delivers the, the word of the Lord upon the mountain to the people because he is God. You see that imagery that Jesus is drawing on there, revealing to us his holy self and his holy word. He says, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke of the pen shall pass until all of the law is accomplished, which is why Jesus says in John 10, verse 35, scripture cannot be broken. It doesn't change. It doesn't shift. We change. We shift. We change our minds. We try to weasel out of things. Scripture lays it out pure, simple, and true. So, what do we do with this problem that we are faced with today? This um, dastardly heresy, I'll call it that. 
dastardly heresy. We are not a Bible-believing church. We are a Jesus-believing church. I hope that I have made the case strong enough that you see that that is utter nonsense. it, It makes not even a little bit of sense. The only way we could possibly know the word of Jesus is if the scriptures are accurate in their depiction of him. The words that are written are accurate of him. If they're not accurate of him, then toss it out. Or, or what you do is what we have today and what happens, I think, with a lot of Christians. And we're all tempted to us, and each one of us probably has in our, in our own way, cut the parts of Jesus out that we don't like, and we keep the stuff that we do like. But you know what that makes? That makes an idol. That's what it is, pure and simple. And what we have in America today is an idolatrous religion, false Jesus. People standing up and saying, I want some of Jesus, but not all of Jesus. This word is good. This word, well, you know, Jesus was, you know, he was living in his culture. No, the word of God cannot be broken. I'm reminded of the story we have in John chapter 12 as we kind of wrap this word up today. Where uh, Jesus is dealing with the Pharisees and He's speaking to them, and what's so interesting about this is we're talking, I'm talking about church people to church people. (laughs) This is a very in-house conversation, isn't it? Very in-house conversation. What's so interesting is a lot of Jesus' Jesus' interactions are very in-house. He is a follower of God speaking to Pharisees. He's a teacher, a rabbi, a teacher about God, and he's dealing with with Pharisees who are teachers about God, right? And so it's, again, another in-house instance. And in this in-house instance, he says, God has blinded their eyes. God has hardened their heart. Lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart. Because if they could, they would turn to me and I would heal them. That's a scary word, isn't it? That means that God has intentionally allowed those people who said, I believe in you, God. They have kept the law. They have memorized the Old Testament. They're probably very more strict and rigid about their religiosity than we are. And the scriptures say that God has allowed their hearts to be hardened so that they could no longer hear the truth. So they could not turn to him. So they could not repent. So they could not be saved. That's scary. It's very scary. Which is why the word of Jesus is so powerful and true. Let those who have ears to hear, hear. If you have ears to hear today, hear. Jesus cried out to them. I I love this. He's he's speaking to these Pharisees and he's interacting with them and he he quotes this prophecy, this prophecy that damns them. It draws them down. The pits of judgment inescapable and then Jesus cries out he shouts to the crowd he says whoever believes in me believes not in me but the one who sent me and whoever sees me sees him who sent me I have come into the world as a light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness but if anyone hears my word and does not keep him I don't judge him for I did not come to judge the world but to save the world but the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge the word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day for I have not spoken on my own authority but the father who has sent me he himself has given me this commandment and that which I say to you today is this and I know that his commandment is eternal life what I say therefore I say as the father has told me 
And so the word to the church today is this. Are you keeping his commandments? Not some of them, not most of them, all of them. And I think for all of us, the answer is no, right? The answer is no. The answer is I'm a sinner in need of the grace of God. And so this is a moment of decision for us, a moment of self-reflection as we sing this song, a moment to search our hearts and see where in the scriptures we have failed to keep the word and to renew our commitment, not because of our desire to earn salvation, but because of our great love for our great God who through his great son has saved us. My second call to you is to open your Bibles this week to open your scriptures, especially as we come near to this season, the season of remembering Jesus, of remembering all that God has done, shouldn't we then search his word for his truth? Search his word for his commandment. And then if you find it, immediately, immediately obey. Immediately keep it. Immediately follow it. Because Jesus says this, and I know that his commandment is eternal life. God be the glory. Let's stand and sing.